This ethics podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilonishmas Aharon, Avraham, Ben Yosef Yaakov, who recently passed away. May his soul be elevated in heaven. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. We are up to chapter 6, Mishnah number 2. Amar Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says, Bechol yom vayom baskol yotis mahar chorev. Every single day, a heavenly voice emanates from Mount Chorev, Mount Horeb, which is one of the names of Mount Sinai. Umachrezes velmeres and proclaims and says, Oilahem labrios me elbonushal Torah. Woe to them, to the people, because of their shame to the Torah. So every day there is a prophetic voice booming and emanating from Mount Chorev, from Mount Sinai, saying, Woe to the people who insult the Torah. For whoever does not occupy himself with Torah, Nikra Nazuf is called Nazuf, which means rebuked or ostracized. Shenemar, as it says, it quotes a verse, Nezem zahav v'avchazir, like a ring of gold, or a ring of gold in the snout of a swine. Isha yafe v'sarastam. So too is a beautiful woman who turns away from good judgment. Ve'omer, the verse also says, V'haluchos ma'asei elokim hima. The tablets were the work of God. V'hamichtav, and the script, were michtav elokim, were the script of God. Hucharus al haluchos, that was etched, that was engraved on the tablets. Al tikra charus. Don't read the verse as charus, which means engraved. Ela cherus, which is another way to pronounce those same letters. We know that the Hebrew language, in addition to the letters, there are the invisible vowels, the nikudot, and therefore the word charus, which means etched, can also be read as cherus, which means freedom. And that's telling you, continues the Mishnah, she'ein lecha ben chorim elami she'osek betalmatar, because there's no free person other than that, who studies Torah. V'chol mi'sha'ozik Torah, and whoever engages in the study of Torah, ha'reizim es'ala, behold, this person becomes elevated, shenamar umi matana nachliel, from matana to nachliel, umi nachliel ba'mos, and from nachliel to ba'mos. So this is the second Mishnah of the sixth chapter of Perkyavos, and it's continuing the theme of lauding Torah. In the previous Mishnah we had, Rabbi Meir telling us that someone who studies Torah gets all these amazing benefits, and now we are being exhorted to study Torah, and our sages are telling us that someone doesn't study Torah, if someone neglects Torah, well, there's a prophetic voice who is announcing from Mount Choreb that woe to the people who neglect Torah, and this person is, is, is rebuked, and there's no freedom aside from someone who does study Torah, and someone who does indeed engage in Torah study is elevated. What is happening in this Mishnah and what is it teaching us? So the first question we have to ponder is why is the name of Mount Sinai, why is it called Mount Chorev in our Mishnah? And again, there are many names, the Talmud tells us, for Mount Sinai. It's called Mount Sinai. It's called the mountain of God, Har HaElokim. It's called Mount Chorev as well. It's also called Midbar Tzin. It's called Midbar Paran. There's many names given to this mountain. So it is okay 
to call this mountain, instead of the traditional name, Mount Sinai, to call it Mount Chorev. But why is this particular name being used here? Why is it Mount Chorev and not Mount Sinai? Now, in Hebrew, the word Chorev means destruction. This is the mountain of destruction. What does that mean? So the Talmud tells us in the book of Shabbos, on page 89b, on the very top, the Talmud tells us, why is this mountain, the mountain upon which the Almighty appeared and spoke to the Jewish people and conveyed the Ten Commandments? And we had the revelation, the revelation of, of Sinai, the revelation that changed the entire course of Jewish and world history. The revelation that is the basis of our religion, the giving of the Torah, the beginning of the transferring of the Torah from the heavens on high to us down below. Why is this mountain called, in addition to Mount Sinai, it's called Mount Chorev? Says the Talmud, because on this mountain, besides for the Torah that descended upon this mountain, destruction, Chorev, Chorva, was also conveyed on this mountain. The nations of the world, they rejected Torah. We know, the Midrash tells us, that before the Almighty gave the Torah to Jewish people, he went from nation to nation, asking them, offering them a piece of the pie, a piece of the action, come get some Torah. And every nation rejected it. And as a result of that, every nation became subject to destruction. The Jewish people, we are an eternal nation. There are many prophecies talking about this idea. There's many sources in Jewish literature about this idea. The Jewish people will be around forever. Even though we're small in number, even though we are persecuted, even though we're sent into exile, even though we're found in every place and every corner of the world, we always go back to Israel. We always coalesce back in our homeland. We always have this connection, this deep-seated connection with Torah. A lot of terrible things can happen to us as a nation, but we will endure. That's what history has shown us, and that's what the Torah foretells. Why are we an eternal nation? Nations come and go. Empires rise and fall. Why is our nation the one nation that endures? The answer is, we have some divine Kevlar. We have divine protection. We have a divine promise that says no matter how terrible things may get, and they will get terrible, and they'll get worse for us than for any other nation. But we will always endure. We will always survive because we have this protection because we accepted the Torah. By accepting the Torah, we made a pact with God Our side is our commitment to his mission, to bringing his name to the world, to spreading awareness of God in the world, to try to fix the world, to try to complete what Abraham began. That's our part of the bargain. And the money says, in exchange, I will make sure that you will be an exalted people. You'll be the chosen people. You'll be the kingdom of priests and the holy nation. You'll have the land of Israel, the choicest of lands, and you will endure, you will survive. That's the bargain 
That's the agreement. That's the treaty. That's the pact. That's the covenant that we agreed upon at Sinai. Jewish people are promised you'll live forever. Why? You'll exist forever. Why? Because you accepted the Torah. The nations at Sinai had the same agreement on the table, but they rejected it. And as a result of that, Mount Sinai is also called Mount Chorev, the mountain of destruction, because the nations that rejected the Torah, they are subject to being destroyed because they do not have this divine Kevlar. But Amrishna is telling us that while the nation at large will survive, it's possible for individuals to have the same effect of Mount Chorev that was given to the other nations, even individuals amongst our nation, should they choose to follow the path of the nations that rejected the Torah, they too will be subject to Mount Chorev. They too will be subject to being destroyed in the event that they reject the Torah. And therefore, every single day we're told there's a prophetic voice coming specifically from Mount Chorev telling us, woe to those who reject the Torah, woe to those who are subject to the disgrace of Torah. Now the word Chorev is etymologically linked to the word Cherev. Cherev and Chorev. It's the same root. The word Cherev means a sword. The word Chorev means a destruction. The Talmud tells us that swords, meaning bloodshed, meaning war, swords descend upon the world in the event that we neglect Torah. So the same idea, on a national scale, there's chorev, there's destruction, there's, there's the risk, so to speak, of destruction. And on an individual level, there's chorev, there's the sword, there's the risk of personal destruction, the event that someone rejects the Torah. The Talmud tells us that in the times of King Chizkia, Hezekiah, he wanted to encourage Torah study. And he went to the academy and he took a sword and he put the sword on the ground. And he says, you have two choices. This is the kind of king we had. You have two choices. Either you're going to the academy and study or I'm going to stab you with a sword. Needless to say, that proved to be quite persuasive. And in fact, the Talmud tells us that there was a census they did a census in the times of Christia, and every single man, woman, and child in the entire land were experts in very intricate laws of purity and impurity. We see the same idea. The righteous king is trying to tell us, that's really the choice that you face. Do you want Torah or do you want destruction, both on a national level, Chorev, and on an individual level, Cherev? Even though we accepted the Torah, our antecedents accepted the Torah. Nevertheless, it's possible to still reject it afterwards, and that would be devastating. Now, the Ruach Haim, one of the amazing commentaries on Perky Avos, on the book, The Chapters of Our Fathers, he asks the question that everyone's asking. Well, it's really nice to study Torah, 
And isn't that a wonderful pastime? And wouldn't it be great if we had more time to study? But what about making a living? What about watching the Super Bowl? What about all the other things that we have to busy ourselves with? I understand Torah study is important. But what about everything else? I'll point out that the author of the Ruach Chaim passed away in 1821, about 150 years before the first Super Bowl. He doesn't mention the Super Bowl, but he talks about the other responsibilities, the other requirements, the other aspects of our life. What about that? Is that perhaps a good excuse to shirk our Torah obligations? So he points out that if you look at the dialogue between God and all the other nations, when God offered them the Torah, that was precisely their argument. They rejected the Torah because they said, we we need to do things that are against the Torah in order to make a livelihood. And therefore, he says something very deep. The nations rejected the Torah because it hampered their ability to make a living. What do you mean? It only works six days a week? I'm going to lose, you know, 14 point something percent of my income. What do you mean I can't murder? Don't you know that our forefather Asaph was told you should live on your sword? That's how we make a living. That's our business. The Jewish people, by accepting the Torah, inherent in the acceptance of the Torah, implicit in the acceptance of the Torah, was that we accepted it, notwithstanding the fact that it may in fact be detrimental to our ability to earn a livelihood. And nevertheless, we accepted the Torah. And therefore, even though we may think that there is a carve-out and say, you know what? We don't need to study Torah because we have all these other responsibilities. The original acceptance of the Torah was done with full awareness of the fact that it may, in fact, carve into our other requirements. Now, I want to point out, and the Ramam, of course, mentions this as well, that we are encouraged to earn a living. In fact, it's one of our mitzvahs. We are obligated to earn a living. But the point is, is that we have to choose our priorities. And our priorities should be our soul. Our soul is what's going to endure. We have, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100 years in this world. And that's it. The body, the body is done. But the soul lives on. We have to invest in ourselves. And it's important for us to invest in ourselves as a body to build, so to speak, a legacy here, but we cannot shirk our life as a soul. Our permanent life is the life of the soul, and therefore we have to invest in that life as well, and we cannot neglect it. The Rambam, in fact, he, he says, you have to earn a living, but you should still find you know nine hours a day to study Torah. Think about it. You know, you'll have 15 hours to do everything else. Plenty of time to do everything else in your day. But carve out just just nine hours, that's it, every day to study Torah. Now, I don't know if that's really feasible for us, but certainly every day we should have one touch point with Torah study 
with the study of the soul, the study of the big picture of what we're actually living for. What's the purpose of it all? No one says the purpose here is to make, to make money because even the money is just a tool for something else. The purpose is to develop our soul. The purpose is to prepare our soul for eternity. And therefore, the best way to do it is with Torah study. Every day we should have at least one moment, one touch point with that reality. And every day we're told that there is a prophetic voice booming from Mount Chorif saying, Oy lahem labrios, woe to the creations from the shame, from the disgrace of Torah. Now what does it mean that there's a disgrace of Torah? So Rashi says, well, we have the Torah. It used to be in the heavens. It used to be inaccessible to us, but now we have it. And it's a disgrace to the Torah when it is ignored. And therefore, by us neglecting the Torah, we are disgracing the Torah. That's the simple interpretation. The other commentaries add, like the Chassid Yaivetz amongst others, they say when someone neglects Torah study, the honor of the Torah itself is unchanged. But the person who rejects it, they are the disgraced one. And then he adds something scary. Someone who ignores the Torah is tacitly testifying that they and their ancestors did not stand near the mountain at Mount Sinai. If your grandparents signed a pact with God over the Torah, if they were part of the covenant of Torah, how does it not translate into their children? And then the Mishnah continues and says that someone who rejects Torah study, they are like a nazof. They are a rebuked one. They are an ostracized one. And then it quotes an interesting verse from Proverbs about a ring in the nose of a pig and a beautiful woman who doesn't have judgment. What does this actually mean? So there's an amazing comment here by the Ruach Haim, and he says an amazing analogy. Suppose there was a king. There's a king who has a beautiful, amazing daughter. And for some reason, the king takes the princess and marries off the princess to a peasant, to a simpleton. And the hope is that this amazing and educated and cultured and refined and noble young princess will have such a mesmerizing effect on the simple boorish peasant that the wife, the princess, will uplift her husband, will transform her husband, will turn him into a more refined and delicate and ethereal person. And will turn him into a prince of his own. And teach him to be dignified and noble and cultured and civilized. That's the plan. So too, the Almighty gives us the Torah. Who are we? We're the uncultured, uncivilized humans. We're humans. Humans can be terrible things. We're not angels. The angels coveted the Torah. The angels desired it more than anything else. 
It made sense, if you think about it, to marry off the beautiful princess to another prince. But it's not what the Almighty did. He takes the Torah and gives it to us. The uncouth, animalistic, problematic, fallible humans. With the hope, with the anticipation that we will take the Torah and have it influence us. And you know what? If we do engage with the Torah, it will turn us into a prince. It will refine us. It will elevate us. It will uplift us. It's going to change our lives. But what happened? Instead of us being changed and transformed, it was like taking a nose ring and putting it on a pig. The nose ring is gorgeous, it's gold, it's valuable, it's beautiful. But what does the pig do? The pig still goes to the trash and goes burrowing in the trash to find trash to squat in. Why? Because the pig is a pig. And now the pig has a nose ring, a nice heavy metal ring it could burrow better with. Look at that. Now it has this sharp metal object. It could dig even deeper into the trash. Isn't that a shame? Instead of taking the Torah and using it to make us better, there could be a reality that the Torah actually makes us worse. Why? Because we're not engaging with it. And instead of it uplifting us and turning us into a prince, it makes us a better digger in the trash. And that's really the equation of Sinai. The equation of Sinai is, the Jewish people are told, you now have the Torah, and now you are an extremist. Meaning, you're either going to be amazing, because you're going to use this powerful tool for the right purposes to transform yourself into really an angel, or it's going to make you worse, because you're going to use all the powers that you have for bad outcomes. This past week's Parsha, really the whole Parsha season that we're in right now, talks about the Mishkan, the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, there are all kinds of vessels, and you know some people love reading about it, some people, their eyes glaze over, oh, it sounds so boring, all these dimensions... Where's the meaning? Where's the insight? But part of this narrative talks about the garments of the high priest, of the Kohen Gadol. And the Kohen Gadol had eight special garments. One of them is, of course, the chosh and the breastplates that has the, the 12 stones, four rows of three across. Each stone had the name of one of the tribes. And then he had the ephod, which is like the apron-like garment, and the me'il, and the special hat, the turban, and the, the tzitz that went on the forehead. But there was also on top of the shoulders of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, were the two stones called the Avne Shoham, the Shohan stones. And on the Shoham stones, it said the names of the 12 sons of Jacob. Now, it's interesting the Torah tells us the name of all these 
stones that were on the chest of the Kohen Gadol, the identity of these stones, one was called a, a Odem and a Pitadon, a Berechus, these are different names of stones, a, a Sapir, which sounds like a sapphire, a Yahalom, which is today the, the word that we have for a, for a diamond is a Yahalom. So it's a big mystery to figure out what these stones are. But again, 12 stones on the on the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol, of the high priest, and each one of them was a specific kind of stone. But it's interesting that if you look at the 11th stone, the stone that corresponds to Joseph, it was called a Shoham stone. A Shoham stone. That was the name of the stone on the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, that corresponded to Joseph. The two other stones that went on the shoulders were also called Shoham stones. So it's interesting, there were three Shoham stones, one of them on the on the breastplate, corresponding to Joseph, and two of them on top of the aphod, on top of the apron-like garment, corresponding to the rest of the nation. And the question was asked, why is Joseph the one who has his stones on the shoulders of the Kohen God, the high priest? So I wanted to speculate that Joseph shows us what someone with incredible talents, what they really have to choose from. Joseph was the most talented and capable of the 12 sons of Jacob. And he was given more difficult tests than all the other sons of Jacob. And the outcomes, the potential outcomes that Joseph had were much more extreme than the rest of the brothers. And there's an amazing teaching in the Talmud. The Talmud says that when Joseph was about to sin with the wife of Potiphar, with Mrs. Potiphar, a visage appeared to him in the window. It was the appearance of his father, Jacob. And his father, Jacob, told him, in the future, this family is going to burgeon into a nation, and we're going to have a temple, we're going to have a tabernacle, and we're going to have a high priest, and then the high priest is going to have eight garments, and on the top of the aphod, the apron-like garment of the high priest, there's going to be stones, and on the stones it's going to say the names of you and your 11 brothers. But if you sin... It will have the names of 11 brothers and your name will be omitted. And instead, you will be labeled as a patron of the harlots. Do you want to go ahead with it? And that gave Joseph the courage to overcome temptation. That's what the Talmud tells us in the book of Sota. So I find it really fascinating that there is a counterfactual world in which Joseph's name doesn't even appear on the Shoham stones. In the event that he would have sinned, it wouldn't have said his name. But now that he did overcome, not only does it say his name, but the actual stones are the stones of Joseph. The same stone that corresponds to Joseph on the breastplate, that's the same stone that is featured on either shoulder of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And that, again, shows us this idea that you have someone with great ability and the options are just the extremes. Are you going to be amazing, 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 and you'll have the stones will be your stones or are you going to be booted from the stones entirely? And that's essentially what happened at Sinai. 
The, Jew, the Jewish people were told, mediocrity is not in your future. You are being given this amazing ring or this amazing woman in the analogy of Proverbs, and it will either cause you to become like an angel, more elevated even perhaps than an angel, more refined than any other people on this earth, or if you neglect it, you won't just be okay, no worse than your neighbor, you will be way worse. The Jewish people compared to the stars and to the sand. We're told in the Torah a few times, we could be as numerous as the stars and as numerous as the sand. But what does that mean? I don't know. But I do know that a granule of sand is not quite the same as a star. Like we have one star, which if you compare it to all the stars, it's a pretty ordinary star, the sun, but it provides illumination and light and warmth to the whole world. How can you compare a star to a granule of sand? The answer is that the Jewish people were told at Sinai, we're either going to be amazing or we're going to be totally an afterthought. Something that you trample on, like a granule of sand, like dust beneath your feet. And here we're told in this Mishnah that in the event that someone neglects Torah, not only are they making a poor choice in foregoing a tremendous, powerful thing, but they're actually going to end up way worse. And then we're told that the luchos, the tablets, were etched by God. And the writing was the writing of God. Someone who rejects the Torah, we're told that they're, they're kind of, it's a disgrace. It's an embarrassment. It's an insult. It's so despicable. Why? Why? So a few reasons. But there's another idea here. The Torah that we have is from God. We have tablets etched by God. Can you imagine how shameful it is to neglect Torah? If you think about it, you have a king. The king has a million advisors and officers and servants. Everyone could do things for the king. The king could sit all day in his throne and have other people do all of his work. The Almighty could appoint an angel. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. And the Almighty does nothing. It's possible. But the Almighty says, I want to inscribe on these tablets. Moreover, the Exodus, we're told, it wasn't the Almighty sending an angel to go extract the Jewish people from Egypt. The Almighty himself did it. At Sinai, the Almighty did not send an emissary, an angel, to go speak to the Jewish people. The Almighty himself did it. This is demonstrating to us that the Almighty cares about this. He cares about this relationship. He cares about the relationship with us. He cares about the fact that this is his Torah and he wants to give it to us personally. And therefore, how much of a disgrace is it if someone says, King, sorry, I'm not interested. Keep your Torah. Keep the change. I don't need it. Isn't that an embarrassing thing? 
But this, of course, leads into the final element of our Mishnah. Don't call this writing on the luchos, on the tablet. Don't call it charos, which means etched on the tablets. Call it cherus. It gives freedom. If this is something that the Mahdi himself gives, that means it's like the highest priority. It's not something that he outsources to the angels. He does it himself. It's one of the highest priorities. And therefore, it's going to trump all the lower priorities. And therefore, inherent in this idea that the Almighty is giving us the Torah, and it's his Torah, so to speak, Torah that he himself interacted with, he himself etched upon those stones. In that case, he's telling us this is something that I value, and if you embrace this, if you make this your priority, I'm going to make sure that all the other things that are of less importance, they are going to be moved aside. Continues the Mishnah. Don't read it as charus, which means etched. Read it as cherus, which means free. Ein ben chorim. There's no free person aside from the person who studies Torah. Now this is a very surprising statement. The Mishnah is telling us, who is a free person? The one who studies Torah. If you look at the Torah, it sounds a lot more like subjugation than it does freedom. After all, the Torah governs every aspect of your life. There are myriads of things that you have to do, and there are myriads of things that you cannot do that you must abstain from. This is like a comprehensive guide to life, and it's a binding and immutable one. Yet our Mishnah says that this is the only way to get freedom. What is the idea here? So there are a few answers to this. But I want to share one of them. Again, the question is, what does it mean that the Torah grants us freedom? To us, it looks like it's the opposite. All these restrictions, all these constrictions, not freedom, but restrictions, but subjugation. The Ruach Haim shares an amazing idea. He says that invariably, humanity is going to be subject to something. The only question is, what are we going to be subjected to? All of us are going to have a master. But who is that master going to be? Is it going to be the Almighty? Or is it going to be the awful boss at work? Or is it going to be the oppressive, tyrannical government? Or is it going to be the problems that you have in your life? Who's in charge? Is it God? Is God going to determine your fate? Or are other things going to determine your fate? And he quotes a Mishnah earlier in chapter 3 of Perkyavos. The Mishnah says something quite surprising. If you accept upon yourself the yoke of Torah, if you say, give me the yoke of Torah, all the other yokes and all the other responsibilities get removed from your shoulders. The yoke of kingdom, the yoke of the way of the world, all these other things that hamper and inhibit people and subject people, they all melt away when someone accepts the yoke of Torah. And if you remove the yoke of Torah, right away they are supplanted 
with the yoke of the kingdom and the yoke of the way of the world. What this mission is telling us is a yoke invariably lies on your shoulders. The question is, what is that yoke? Do you want to have the awful yoke? The yoke of kingdom, as it's called, the yoke of the way of the world? Or do you want the yoke of Torah? The yoke of Torah is the yoke of freedom. The only way to have freedom from the yoke of kingdom and the yoke of the way of the world is via Torah. Now, I want to explain this idea a little bit more. The Mishnah promises us freedom. Freedom. Cheros, freedom. And the way we're explaining what that means is, well, you're going to have a yoke anyhow. Isn't it better to have this yoke over that yoke? But that doesn't sound like freedom. It sounds like maybe a more pleasant yoke, the newer model. It's a little bit less uncomfortable than the old one. I'd rather be subjected to God than subjected to all these other things. But it still sounds like a yoke. It's not quite freedom. I want to share an amazing insight. Suppose there was a king who had tremendous riches. Storehouses, treasure houses of riches, of treasures, of gold. And he takes one of his servants and says, you're my servant. I'm giving you a job. You better do your job. If you don't do it, I'm going to flog you. Okay, what's the job? I want you to count all the gold coins that I have. If you don't do it, I'm going to punish you. Oh, and by the way, whatever you count, you keep. Whatever you count, you keep. But if you don't count it, I'm going to beat you up. Does that sound like a yoke or does that sound like freedom? The servant is delighted. Give me this responsibility every day. You kidding? Everything I count, I keep. You better count it. Or else I'll beat you up. Or else I'll punish you. I'll imprison you. That is a yoke that we would all gladly accept every single day. Because after all, it's what we want to do anyhow. This is what we actually want to do. That's the idea of this Mishnah. The Almighty is telling us, accept upon yourself the yoke of Torah. Your soul covets Torah like your body covets money and any other physical sensation or pleasure. That's what the soul wants. That's what you want. You want to stockpile those gold coins of Torah. That's what you want anyhow. It's not a yoke. It's True freedom. Yes, technically it's a yoke because God will punish us if we don't do it. But we get to keep whatever we invest in this. And that's the end of the Mishnah. The end of the Mishnah says that you get from Mimidbar Matana and Mibamos Nachliel. I'm sorry, I messed up the, the verse. How does the verse go? Mimatana Nachliel, from Matana to Nachliel, Minachliel Bamos. Talmud explained the word Matana means a gift. What this means is, 
that the Torah study that you do is yours to keep. You invest in Torah study, you earn that spiritual reward for all eternity. All that gold is yours. So is it a yoke? Yes, but it is a yoke that we would gladly keep. Concludes the Mishnah, call me Sha'ozim with Torah. Whoever engages in Torah study, behold, they are uplifted. Whoever engages in Torah study is uplifted. Torah study is a meritocracy. The Talmud tells us, if you have a Kohen Gadol, the high priest, the most important officer of the temple, one of the leaders of the Jewish people, but they're an ignoramus. They're not a Torah scholar. And then you have a bastard, a mamzer. A mamzer who's not allowed to even intermarry amongst the Jewish people. They're totally rejected from the nation. They are totally ostracized. They're a pariah. They're an outcast. They're a bastard after all. But they're a Torah scholar. Who is deserving of more reward? Of more honor, says the Talmud, it is the bastard. Why? Because Torah elevates all who engage with it. Says the Talmud, Yikara mipninim. Torah is more precious than pearls. Pninim means pearls. But penim also means internal. Says the Talmud, Yikara mipninim. Torah is more precious than pearls. Yikara it is more precious than that than the one who enters the inner sanctums of the temple. Of course, the Kohen Gadol, he's the only one who walks into the Holy of Holies. What is even more precious than the one who goes into the Holy of Holies? Is the one who's always there. It's the Torah scholar. When the Kohen Gadol walks into the Holy of Holies, what does he find? He finds the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark that has the Torah in it. The true meritocracy is that if you study Torah, you're kind of accessing those tablets etched by God, and you become a permanent resident of the Holy of Holies, not an occasional visitor. And therefore the mamzer, the bastard, who is a Torah scholar, he's there all the time. He doesn't just walk in once a year. He is greater than the high priest. Now, I want to add one more point. The mission says, call Misha Ozbatama Torah, whoever engages in Torah study. The Talmud tells us that even a non-Jew, even a Gentile who studies Torah, behold, they are like a Kohen Gadol. They're like a high priest. Again, quotes the same verse, Yitkarahim, Yipninim, this Talmud again is featured in Avodazar, page 3a. In Sanhedrin, page 59a. I have to remember that because I wrote a book in the past, an all-Hebrew book, titled V'chai Bahem, that I published about 13 years ago. And in the introduction, I quoted this Talmud. What an amazing idea. It's a total meritocracy. Whoever engages in Torah study, Right away, it's catapulted to this very high level equivalent to a Kohen Gadol. It uplifts all of us. And by the way, if you are fortunate enough to immerse yourself in Torah study, you could get a sense of that. You could feel it. 
You can feel a transformation. You can feel how it's impacting you and elevating you. This is the Torah of God. And if we were around 3,500 years ago, it would be totally inaccessible to us. Unless you're like Abraham, who was able to access Torah before it was even given, you're locked out of this. But we live in a world in which we have access to it. Think about it. There's still like 8% of America or Americans that don't use the internet. Ah, who needs it? I don't need it. Ah, my life's good enough as, as is. Think about it. Well, you, you have access to all the world's information besides the Torah. Amazing videos you could watch and, of course, podcasts you could listen to. Of course. You could email people and instantly you don't have to send a letter in the mail. You can see pictures of your, of your, of your kids, of your friends, of your cousins, of your parents, of your grandkids. What an amazing tool. Ah, who needs it? We have the Torah. And we're like those, like those Luddites who say, ah, who needs it? Isn't it a shame? Isn't it a shame? And for us who, whose antecedents stood at Mount Sinai, we have to realize that we have a gold piece of jewelry. And it's our choice if we're going to embrace it and access it and use it to transform ourselves from a peasant into a prince. If we're going to use what the angels covet so deeply but cannot have, or are we going to take it and say, you know what, let it help me dig deeper into the mud. Why should we do that? Let us get out of the mud, out of the morass, and embrace the Almighty's Torah. As always, my address is Rabbi Walby at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions and your comments.